0: At four o'clock. So encourage you to uh, again continue to check emails and websites so you can stay plugged in. Tonight we're going to gather into God's presence and around His throne to worship Him. And here is our invitation from Psalm ninety-five: it says, "Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord; let us shout aloud to the Rock of our salvation." Jesus is the one who gives us salvation, and we're going to be uh, reminding ourselves tonight as we partake of communion of what he's done for us. And so those of you that are online, if you want to get some bread and some juice as we do that later in the service, but let's uh, stand and let's worship the rock of our salvation this evening.
1: The wonder of how you
2: brought Deliverance, the exodus of my heart You found me, you freed me Held back the waters for my release Oh Yahweh You're the God who fights for me Lord of every victory Hallelujah Hallelujah! You have torn apart the sea. You have led me through the deep. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! The cloud by day is a fine. sign that you are with me. The fire by night is a guiding light to my feet. You found me. You freed me. Held back the waters for my release. Oh, Yahweh. You're the God who fights for me. Lord of Led me through the deep, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. But you stepped into my Egypt, and you took me by the hand, and you marched me out of freedom, into the promised land, and now I will not forget you, God. I'll sing of all you've done that is swallowed up forever by the glory of your love. Cause you stepped into my Egypt and you took me by the hand and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land. And now I will not forget you, God. I'll sing of all you've done that is swallowed up forever glory of your love. You're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You have torn for are you?
0: to your holiness we see the beauty of who you are we thank you that you are our cornerstone my hope Hope
2: is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus name. Christ alone, cornerstone, we may strong in the same. The trumpets sound
0: that you stepped into our old lives that you have taken away from us and completely took care of the darkness in our life and brought your light that came breaking through and to set us free. We thank you that you came into our Egypt and you brought us out. We thank You that You are the Holy One and that You invite us to freely come to Your presence and to Your throne of grace any time that we need, want, desire. And we thank You that You are Lord of all. You are also our own personal Lord. And we thank You that through all seasons of life, You are always with us, guiding us, walking beside us, reminding us of who you are and what you desire us to be. Now, as we dig into your word this evening, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal Jesus to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
1: You would find your way over to 1 Thessalonians as we continue our journey through God's Word and the section where Paul is speaking to the churches. a couple of other reminders. Um, one, it's not too late to get signed up for Israel. So We want to encourage you, if you're, you're still on the fence on that, definitely you want to get signed up. We are getting closer to where everything is due, and so we want to get you plugged in. We've got about 22 people already signed up, and we've got room for um, a few more. I think we can get up to 30-something. At any rate, we got that going on, and if and for men, um, we are having a great time on Wednesday mornings at 5:30 doing a study, a deep dive in the book of Revelation. And we just finished chapter one this week. We'll start chapter two uh, next week and work through the churches with that. You can either watch online if you get the email. You can you can plug in that way, but it's it's better to come in person uh, to really be able to interact. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at and starting. A study in, in the first Thessalonians. And as we take a look at this, this is one of the key cities that was part of Paul's ministry in Asia. Just kind of, I want to orient you to his trip. So in his first missions trip, he traveled up through, and then when we think about Macedonia, it's this area over here. Thessalonica is here, Amphilia and uh, uh Apollonia is right in this area, so he came through through Troas, crossed over to Thessalonica, Berea. From there, he would travel down to Athens. That's there. When we talk about the seven churches of Revelation, which is our trip last October, um, we were in this area that is here. And just for orientation, Jerusalem is down here. So when we, when I'm going to read to you a section of that trip in Acts 17, we'll put the scriptures up. But it'll talk about him passing through these cities and getting over to Thessalonica and some of the things that were going on with understanding that this was a church that needed encouragement. In fact, one of the things that we find in Paul's letter, both in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is Paul's pastoral heart. He really wants to encourage these people and he's speaking both as a pastor and as a father to a group of people, and encouraging them. So if you need encouragement, these two books are going to be really encouraging to you, as we'll unpack them and some of the other things they're in. But to give you a flavor of the ministry that was going on, and the backdrop of why Thessalonica needed encouragement, in Acts 17, verses 1 through 10, says this. This is how the church was kind of birthed. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis. In Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. And they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and and they're all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd, city authorities who heard these things. When they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, that was Paul's entrance into Thessaloniki. He went in as was his custom and he went to reason in the synagogue because he believed that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek or the Gentiles. And so that was his whole goal. So he went and he reasoned for a total of three Sabbaths and and Paul at that time thought well this isn't working in the Sabbath. So apparently he would spend time in Jason's house and do a home church that was there for an Undisclosed amount of time. But having be, been in there, the Jews that were there had gotten this mob and started rousting the people against him. And they needed to get Paul out of there and away from Jason's house. We, we don't know exactly how long he was there. He was long enough because we'll read in the text where um, he actually did some work, some side work as a tent maker with, within that. But he wasn't, he wasn't there very long. Now, part of the problem and the opposition and the tension that was in the town had become so great that as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing the letter out of deep concern because he wanted to get back to Thessalonica because he was pushed out and and bum-rushed out of Thessalonica so fast. He was concerned that what was started there would not necessarily have lasted. And so he wanted to check in. It wasn't like Paul could Facebook them or messenger them or anything like that. And so he wanted to find out how they were doing with that. As we read 1st Thessalonians, it is no doubt a Pauline letter. Paul inside the text, the internal evidence says that Paul did it because he addresses it that he did it himself, that he wrote it. And also 2nd Thessalonians, it's also evidence in earlier church writings. The Maturian canon had Paul as the author along with some other writings. And the same is true in Second Thessalonians. In fact, Second Thessalonians chapter three seventeen, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So Paul would write, and how would he write? Well, a lot of commentators believe he wrote in big letters, as he would say, because he had a hard time seeing. Most of Paul's letters, at least a good number of them, he would have somebody that would write for him. But there would be times when he would write within this. And the other thing that is in here besides encouragement is we see an eschatological overview or, or concept that's in Thessalonians that really encourages the believer to look for the second coming of Christ. And we're going to see that in our text for sure. We know that Paul was in Athens when he wrote it. He sends Timothy to go and visit them in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. And and we'll get to that tonight. He says, therefore, when we couldn't endure it any longer, we thought it best to leave behind, to be left behind at Athens alone. And we send Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you. It's best estimated that Paul wrote this letter somewhere around 50 to 51 A.D., we know that because one of Paul's encounters was with a proconsul named Galileo um, in Corinth. And he was in power and inscribed on pillars in 51-52 A.D. And he was writing, as I said earlier, to the church in a time of persecution. Where it was really hard in Thessalonica to be a Christian because of the Jewish persecution that was coming in and the rallying because what they were saying and when they when they rioted in Acts 17 they were throwing accusations that this Paul and all of his followers were turning the world upside down. I kind of like that phrase. What would it be like if the church was really turning the world upside down with the teaching of the gospel? That would be amazing, but it requires perseverance and it requires endurance. In this day and age, is it hard to be a Christian? It is, actually. Because the world is pressing in so much and creating so much opposition and persecution that Christians are, are becoming more and more fearful in opening their mouth and standing firm. And as Paul is writing to these believers, he wants to encourage them not to have peace from the conflict, but peace in the conflict. When you are completely convinced of the message and the power of the gospel, you will have peace in presenting the gospel, regardless of the conflict that that you're in. And he wants them to encourage them. And he said, well, Carrie, how how is it that you can have peace in conflict when you're presenting the gospel? Paul's theme as he moves through this, not only is to have peace in the midst of conflict, but have a perspective of Jesus is coming soon. When we have the perspective that Jesus is coming soon, then we're not so much embedded and worried about the things of the world today, are we? No, because we're looking for his return within this. And so he wants them to recognize that, that, that God's coming soon. And he also wants to recognize them what, from what God saved them from within this to consider the idolatry. As we'll get into it in a minute, and, and I, Thessalonica was really an idolatrous city. It, it was horrible within this. And so he wants them to look beyond the evil, the present evil. How do you have peace in the conflict? And how do you persevere when, when life gets hard? You keep looking for Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep looking for His return. And... You you get in that place where you are encouraging others to look that way. And Paul's pastoral heart preaches the second coming of Jesus within that. I, I wish he would come today. That would be good. But if he doesn't, how do I make it through the day? I know that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes, he's going to take the church home. And when he comes to establish his kingdom then all kingdoms will fall. And we're covering that even on Wednesday mornings. And so this key eschatological truth is in these two letters. The day of the Lord and the day that the church is called out, which we call the rapture. And we'll cover that next week as we get into that. There's, There's a hint to it today. But within this, there's something else that's in this. Paul does a masterful job in 1 Thessalonians of maintaining the tension between election and calling and human free will within that. And, And there is a tension there. You can't have one without the other. The Bible teaches both and he holds them in tension. And so he balances this out between the gospel being presented and it being rejected, God's divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Now keep in mind, picture yourself as you are a person that lives in Thessalonica, and the only thing that you know is the culture. What was the culture? It was a polytheistic culture. It had gods on every corner. In fact, we think about this this pagan worship, and here's some names of the gods. You'll recognize them. They had Zeus, Apollo, Athena, Heracles, Epaphrodite, Demeter, Persephone, Poseidon, Pan, and Hades were the key ones. One of the greatest threats, and keep in mind, Paul didn't get to stay there for very long to create good discipleship. One of the greatest threats was the believers becoming saved out of a pagan culture, and now it was difficult in discipleship for them, the danger is for them to fall back into their old habits and their old behavior with the idolatrous society that is around them. Because they're living in the mix of them. Not to mention that the Jews were against Christianity. Judaism was accepted because it was one of the many gods that was there. But Jesus was turning the world upside down through this church. And it was difficult. I think this is a timely message for us as a church. Because the world is pressing in and trying to silence the message. And many people in the church are becoming discouraged. And it's becoming more and more difficult to take a stand for the gospel and to preach the gospel. And so we need to find that same encouragement that Paul has for the church of Thessalonica. And as we listen to these words, there isn't a lot of correction that's in these passages, but an awful lot of encouragement. So I hope that you want to be encouraged. Let's take a look at this passage here. We're going to read through verses 1 through 10 and then unpack them in the first chapter. These are smaller chapters. Paul and Silvanius and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, In God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us, and as the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So when we look at this first passage, Paul starts out with thanksgiving. It's very Pauline when he comes to this, but it's a shorter Pauline address that's in this. He doesn't, one of the things that Paul doesn't do is he doesn't give his credentials to the church. He doesn't say, I'm Paul, the, you know, the apostle, and these other things. He just basically, Paul, Silvanus, uh, and and Timothy, that's there, and so within this, one of the things that, that gives us a hint that this is not a letter of correction is that he doesn't have to establish that apostolic authority. In other words, he doesn't come in and say, I'm Paul the Apostle, here's some good things that you're doing, now here's some things we've got to clean up. He just says, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. I am so thankful for you. If people are discouraged, do they want to be beat up or do they want to be encouraged? They want to be encouraged. And he comes right out and encourages them. And, and he identifies himself and, and Timothy and, and Silas that's there. Same person, same Silas that was mentioned in Acts. Um, he was Silas was also a partner with Judas um, Barsabbas. In the letter of Antioch, and you can take a look at, him at Acts 15. He's joined. Silas joined Paul after, if you remember, Paul and Barnabas had that little spat about John, bringing John Mark, right? And Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark. Paul's like, no, he abandoned us last time. I had to carry my bags myself. It didn't go so good. Barnabas like, no, 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 we need to bring him. Paul's like, nope, we're not. And they had this little heated contention, if you remember. Barnabas went with John, Mark, and and Paul took Silas, and he went on to this second trip that is there. The letter is addressed, notice, to the church. First part of verse 1, to the church. The word church there is ecclesia. It literally means ecclesia is those that are called out in to be an assembly together. You could use this term to describe the Jews of the synagogue, but... In the New Testament literature, Ecclesia always describes the group of believers that are called out of the world, the church. I had a conversation with a guy a couple weeks ago, and, and he made the comment, he says, You know, I, I, I am not into organized religion. I don't like the church. I said, Really? I said, Well, how do you feel about Jesus? Well, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Him as my Lord and Savior, but I don't like the church. And I said, so what church do you not like? Well, I don't like organized religion. I said, do you, know, do you even know what the word church means? So we got into this discussion. But so many people look at the word church, and they look at it as an organization. The church should not be an organization. It's an organism. It is the living body of Christ. And so Paul is writing to a group that are part of the church that happens to live in Thessalonia. within this, these assembly of believers. And he says to this assembly of believers of Thessalonians, and this assembly is in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So within this, he defines who the church is. And the church are those that are called out of the world and placed into the body of Christ. And as those that are in Christ, we have the same fellowship one with another. How is it that we can go to Romania and we can fellowship with believers there? Because we're all part of the same church. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, little c or big c. If you're in the body of Christ, you're part of the same church, the same group that is called out of the world. We have different meeting places different liturgy, but we have one body undivided within us. And Paul reminds them, we are all in this together. And so the persecuted church, if you ever you know, read about the voices of the martyrs, the persecuted church is just as much as part of the church as Warren Community Fellowship. We are all part of the same body to be able to minister to one to another. And so Paul in his greeting reminds them we are in this together. And then he extols a a very uh, Greek entrance, a Pauline entrance, and he says grace and peace to you. Invoking this idea of grace. Grace is what? God's unmerited favor. Peace. Peace from conflict? No. Peace in conflict. And reminding them that this peace that we have is peace with God. Tonight, Are you in conflict? Are you in this place of of like, man, I'm in battle with somebody? Or maybe even battling with myself? When we think about who we are, we are God's kids. We are called out, chosen by God before the foundations of the world. You are. I am by God's grace, is a merited favor. And through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Just sit and think about that for a minute. There are millions of people that are outside of these walls that are not experiencing this unmerited favor, even though it's offered to them. They're not experiencing it. And they're not experiencing peace with God. Therefore, they have internal conflict. If you rest in the peace of God, that you have peace with God, everything else is going to diminish. Everything else is going to diminish with time. And so Paul, he, he, he extols this grace and peace, this wellness and being, and this Jewish shalom. Verses 2-5, through five, he says, I'm thankful for you all. He was in this relationship. We, all three of us, give thanks to God always for you and always making mention of you in our prayers. Being thankful. What is he thankful for? What is he thankful for? He's thankful for their consistent bear, their work, their love, their steadfastness, their hope. You will see a trilogy throughout this letter. Faith, hope, and love. It's a threefold cord that keeps us bound together in relationship with God and with one another. And so Paul uses this, this trilogy of terms, this faith, hope, and love in Christ Jesus. Notice this in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfast hope, where? In our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of our God our Father. If you pause for a minute, and whatever conflict you find yourself in, I want you to imagine this threefold cord that is holding on to you faith, hope, and love. And it's all binding you to the Father through Jesus. And it's a cord that cannot be broken, cannot be separated, bound together. And it's that one cord that you hold on to. Paul was saying, we are thankful that you were holding on to it as it is holding on to you. Your steadfast love. Tonight, do you know people that have walked away from God? That have walked away? That life got hard, God disappointed them. And they walked away. What happened? They lost hope. Then they lost faith and they don't feel loved. Somewhere along the line, one of these three elements started breaking apart. These are not empty words. Faith, hope, and love are the foundation that we stand on. It's the foundation that keeps us. If I had a three-legged stool up here, it'd be pretty stable, wouldn't it? But what would happen if I saw it off one of the legs? Yeah, could you still sit on it? Yeah, but you'd have, to, you'd have to figure out, you'd have to put a leg on there. What if I saw it off two of the legs? Would it be a little bit harder? To, yeah, you've got to balance yourself. And it takes a lot of work. What do we need to do as a, as a Christ follower? We need to endure in faith. We need to endure in hope. We need to endure in love. We need to hang on to the fact that God's got us and He's not going to abandon us. These are not empty words, but it's a calling. It's a challenge. that changes us. Transform lives. In Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, Paul says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed. Note, from faith to faith, as it's written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The transformational power in the gospel is all about faith, hope, and love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Hope. They're embedded in the gospel message. When you preach the gospel to somebody... Preach the gospel that's full of faith, hope, and love. I was on a retreat a couple weeks ago and I, I challenged the hearers of the message to do the same thing. But here's what I challenged them with before you preach the gospel to somebody else, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. You cannot give what you don't have. Preach the gospel of faith, hope, and love to yourself through Jesus. So you're fully convinced to be able to preach the gospel to somebody else because you don't want to try to talk to somebody about something you really don't believe in. It, there's no power in that. But the Holy Spirit will take that message and He provides this, this word within this. So He says, we give thanks for all you make mention of your prayers because you're constantly bearing in mind this faith, hope, and love, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice for you. Here's another aspect to encourage you. God chose you. You didn't choose Him. God chose you. You ever wonder why God chose you? And why did you choose me? It's a mind-blowing thing. I wouldn't choose me. I would choose most of you. I might not choose all of you. But I... but God chose me. And here's the mind-blowing thing about it. God chose you knowing the totality of your life. The end from the beginning. God chose you before the foundations of the world within us. He chose you. To be his child. And and this gospel message. Enlightens us to that. In verse 5 he talks about the gospel. Didn't come only in word. But it came in power. and the full conviction of the Holy Spirit. And with this full conviction. We need to think about. What kind of people we ought to be. Within this. You were chosen. Okay. So I'm chosen. And I'm hanging on to faith, hope, and love. How do I really know? How do I really know that the gospel is transforming my life? Verses 6-10 through tells us that we become imitators. Paul affirms them in their actions. Notice, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So he became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul didn't have a long time. You know, he spent two years in Ephesus, but he didn't have a lot of time in Thessalonica. But here's the deal. When the power of God came through the Word and what they had, it was changing them. I'm discipling an individual right now, and I'm watching the Word of God completely transform this young man night and day. And and, he, and it's like he can't get enough of it. And it's completely changing the way that he is thinking and living his inner being. But it's not something that I'm doing. It's as he's spending time in the Word of God, it's the Word of God that is transforming his life. Paul delivered the message and the Word of God and the teachings that were there. And he discipled some, but the Holy Spirit was taking it to the next level, so much so that as they were being changed, they became to look like a Pauline Christian, a a, a Timothy Christian. They became examples to those that were in Macedonia. And they're looking at their lives saying, man, they are radically changed within this. You should be able to see change in your life. If you're not seeing change in your life, one of two things is happening. Either the Word of God is not having an impact in your life because you have sin in your life. Or the Word of God is not having an impact in your life because you're not saved. Because the Bible says clearly that the Word of God has the power to transform lives. And change you. You should be seeing change in your life. Paul says, I notice the change in you. And that's encouraging. The hardest thing is you don't necessarily recognize that change. I went and visited uh, the Oliver boys. Most of you know them that were here. But the last time I had seen them was many years ago. And they were only, well, the youngest was probably about that tall. Who is now about that tall. Right? And some of the older ones are like that tall. Now, to their parents, they're like, yeah, they've grown. Why? Because you see them all the time. But if you haven't seen anybody for a length period of time, right, especially kids and they grow up, I've got kids that come through youth ministry. It's like, who are you? I was in your Sunday school class. You were. Because they completely change. Now, there's an interesting phenomena that happens. As kids, they grow, they change, they become adults. But as older people become older, like when you hit your, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s, you all look the same. So it's real easy for you. But you look at change. Should you be changing as a Christ follower? The answer is absolutely yes. And even scanning the room. I can see how the word of God in your attendance on Wednesday night and Sunday morning is changing you. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that the word of God is changing you. And Paul's letter was encouraging because you're doing it during persecution. And it's hard, and you're going to suffer. One of the things is enduring. We can, in Philippians 3:10, Paul would write to the church. He says that, as far as the Christ followers being changed in suffering, like Jesus says, that we may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, be a comfort in death. One of the change is being able to endure in suffering. Now, here's kind of the the side that I don't like about this passage. I don't like pain. I don't like pain, I don't like to suffer, I don't like persecution. But the crucible of suffering transforms a life because it draws out the impurities in your life. The crucible of suffering draws out those impurities in your life. So you could deal with them. And suffering allows us to change. The church of Thessalonica, I think, was growing greatly because of the amount of suffering and opposition that they had to go through. You had to believe what you believe. Why is the church in China growing? Why is the church in Muslim countries growing? You know why? Because to be a Christian in China or to be a Christian in one of these countries in a Muslim country, you better believe it. Cuz what happens if if you don't? You'll cave in. But if you do believe it, you declare it, you're going to be persecuted. And sometimes having a good old-fashioned persecution really is helpful to be able to challenge us. So this church in Thessalonica was the model of an enduring missional church. So much so, the other churches around were looking to them saying, wow, they've got it. What made them different? They turned away, Paul says, they turned away from idols and turned towards God. What was was the, the... context of that they completely turned away from society and all of the idols and turned towards god you want to see radical change make radical steps they turned away from the idols they made a clean break from paganism and they only turned towards god one of the most dangerous things in christianity today is called syncretism do you remember what the word syncretism is where you take all these different faiths and you try to synchronize them together, to bring them together, and you create a heresy that is in them. All roads do not lead to eternal life. Only one road. One way. And who is that? Jesus. Jesus. I want to challenge you. Consider your life right now. Right now. Are you growing spiritually? Are you maturing to the point that you are an example to other people? Or is your prayer life dull? Is reading the Word of God dull? Are you not seeing God move? If you're finding that that there's a dullness in your spiritual journey, It's time to take stock. What are you allowing to creep in that's robbing you of your heart for God within this? This church in Thessalonica, these believers had turned away from the idols and turned completely towards God to the point that they were an example to everybody that was there to be a believer that is 100% committed with this. And they had one view. They had one view. Jesus is coming. Back in the 60s and, and late 60s and, and in the early 70s in the Jesus people movement. And if you haven't had a chance to go read, watch a movie or, or, or any of that, you should. You know what made them different? They took God's word serious. And they believed that Jesus was coming back at any time. They got away from the religious norms and the idolatry of people that were worshipping church and they worshipped God. And they looked for Jesus' coming within this. Paul says, notice in verse 10, he says, you've turned away from idols and you turn towards serving the true God. Notice in verse 10, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That rescues us from the wrath to come. When do we know the wrath is coming? Revelation. What is he saying? That the church is going to be removed before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. He's going to speak about this, and we'll cover it next week in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen 16-17, where he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the rapture of the church. To be raised up, to be taken up within this, to be rescued from this, this wrath that is there. And and it's this method of departure. You're not going to find the word rapture in the Bible. You can Google it all you want. You're not going to find the word rapture there. But you are going to find the word caught up and snatched away within that. You're going to to find these connections that are there. We're looking for the graduation day. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this, And in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also who have loved his appearing. What do you love? Do you love this world or do you love God? Do you, are you looking for Jesus to come back or are you looking to settle things and just be okay with here on earth? Church, we are pilgrims. We are passing through this place. And if the Lord tarries and keeps you here and then you die a, a, a natural death, and you go to be with the Lord, that's your graduation day. But if Jesus comes back and He takes the church alive to be with Him and the dead in Christ rise, that's also our graduation day. When, does that, when can that happen? Anytime. Anytime. Now would be a good day, wouldn't it? I would love that. I would love that. Why? Because when I get to heaven then I'm done and I get the reward that, that the Lord has set for me to be able to honor Him, to be able to worship Him. We need to have an eternal perspective. The church starts dying when it loses its eternal perspective. When we become settlers. But there's a lot of people here that in, in our, our county that don't even have that. Family members that we know. We need to live our lives as as living witnesses to this. And we love His appearing with this. And we need to redeem the times, the days are short. Paul is encouraging them pastorally, and he wants to encourage them as a father. Notice in chapter 2, he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know... We have boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid uh, much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error, impurity, or by the way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing to men, but God who examines our heart. For we never came with flattering speech. And you know... Uh, nor with a pretext of greed, God is our, our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, note, as a nursing mother, tenderly cares for her own children, and having so fond affection as for you, that we were, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship and how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. And we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly upright and blameless we behave towards you. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father, his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into the glory, in the kingdom. So we look at this and Paul says, this is how I lived for you. Paul imposed his own self-restrictions. As a pastor and as a parent, you should never put yourself over the people that you serve or your children. God has put you there to serve within this. And Paul refused to be a burden on the church. And he says, you know, in fact, 12 times in this letter he says, you know. You know how I've been. Character is everything. It's everything. People are not going to believe what you say if your character is flawed. Will they? If you are in it for yourself, And so within this, Paul reminds them as a character, he's not defending it against Antigonus, but he's he's sharing with them his love, and his love for them. And they knew of Paul's suffering in Philippi. If you remember Paul's suffering in Philippi, right? He was beaten, thrown in jail, right? Singing praises, prison doors open, Philippian jailer wants to kill himself. Paul says, stop, remember the account. And then the whole house gets saved. But he's got to get out of town. They're like, we don't know what to do with you. Get out. Go. Within this. And you can read about it in Acts 16, 11 to 40. They knew Paul's persecution. They knew that Paul had been persecuted everywhere. And then they also knew of his persecution that was there. The other thing that they knew is that, God, that Paul's gospel was not man-made. They knew that it could change lives. There's a lot of people that create man-made messages to win people over. One of the things about pastoral ministry is pastoral ministry is not a job. It's a calling. Sharing the gospel is not something that you do for money. You should never get to this place where you make an occupation and say, Look it, I'm going to come. I'll come and I'll teach, but you've got to pay me so much. People do that. I refuse to do that. And I know a lot of other pastors that will refuse to do that. Now, if the, if the Lord puts it on people's heart to bless you for doing that, then fine. That's a blessing. But it never should be contractual within that. And so we think about Paul's message. He says, I don't want to be a burden to you at all. Why? The church of Thessalonia was small. They didn't have a lot of money. Paul says, I'm not going to do this. So I'm going to work night and day as a tent maker so that I'm I'm not having to uh, be a burden to you. And the message that I give you, it defies human logic. Notice in 1 Corinthians, Paul would write to the church of Corinth this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you ever explained the gospel to somebody and you talk about Jesus died on the cross for their sins and was buried and rose again three days later and they're like, what? What are you talking about? You believe in a myth, a fairy tale. It's made up within that. It defies human logic how God would come to earth and add to himself humanity and walk this earth. And then take a sinner's death upon himself in the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. It it doesn't make sense, does it? But the minute you put your faith and trust in Jesus and wholeheartedly ask Him to forgive you of your sins and allow the, the Holy Spirit to enter your life and you believe the gospel that's presented to you, your life is radically changed. And you're like, I'm not who I used to be. How does that happen? I don't know. God's doing it they knew that the gospel was not man-made they knew that Paul was not in it for himself they knew Paul's message was not given to please men Paul said I do not speak to please men I speak to please God how many churches today and how many preachers today speak a message just to tickle the ears of people a a social gospel that is pleasing to people and they deviate from the Word of God. They do that. As men please, but then that's that's a tainted gospel. It's not even the gospel. And so Paul says, I'm not going to judge them. God's going to judge their heart. But you take a look at the message. And it was straight from the Word of God. And they knew, as Paul would say, in the fifth, you know, is that he wasn't puffed up. Paul was very much a "what you see is what you get" kind of guy. He was not coming in with a lot of bells and whistles and fanfare and light shows and all of these other things. He was very simple, and he brought the gospel in a simple way. It's interesting because he says, "You didn't get," I didn't use flattery speech, and that word flattery is is. Like we use flattery today to speak words, I might say, hey, you know, that looks really good on you just to make you feel better, right? If my wife was to come out and say, well, how does this look on me? I'm going to say, honey, it's wonderful. Why? Because I will flatter her. And I'm not going to give her an opinion one way or the other. Honey, it looks wonderful. Paul wouldn't do that. Paul would tell the truth. He would tell the truth in such a way that it fit the message. The word flattery in, in the original Greek says, I didn't use flattery or I didn't tailor a message to the people to make the people feel good. Within us, He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He told them the truth and what they needed to hear. Why? Because he was a pastor at heart. Look at verses 7 to 12 when we read through them. He said this, And we proved ourselves to be gentle among you as a nursing mother that cares for her own. Fond affection we had for you. Well pleased in the part. In other words, he says, we We nurtured you like a mother would give her child milk. And at times you'll have to do that with people. You'll have to be very kind and very nurturing with people because they're struggling. If someone came in and said, you know, uh, Carrie, I'm I'm really struggling with this sin, this life-dominating sin in my life, and I went to him and I said, hey, look at, you know, you're the biggest jerk in the world. Yeah, you should be struggling. That's very nice. No. Now, if after three or four years of them coming in and saying that, well, then the gloves might come off. And I say, no, we've been at this for three years and you're choosing not to do anything about this. But... Paul's first attempt at bringing the gospel was very nurturing, and we should. There were some people that were running around preaching the gospel and they were hammering people with the law a number of years ago, just hammering them. and it's like, man, you can't do that with the unbeliever. they have no clue that they're a sinner. You've got, you've got to give them the milk of the word and, and you know leave the law, the steak late for later when they can digest it. So Paul gave them the word like a mother. Paul expressed a selfless kind of love. To be able to be in that place. A sacrificial kind of love within this. And, and he says in verse 9, this working day and night within this. He wasn't motivated for money. The other thing that I think it's important that Paul says, that he wasn't detached from the people. Paul was very approachable as a pastor. In 1 Peter 5, 1-4, Peter would say this, Therefore I exhort you, elders, among you, as fellow elders, witnesses of the suffering of Christ, and partakers also of the glory that's to be revealed. Note, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain or money, greedy money, but with eagerness nor yet as lording over those who are allotted in your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. And when, here's the forward thinking, looking for Jesus' return. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. What did Paul say? He said, I'm going to be with you. Why is Paul writing the letter? Because he wants to be with them. But he can't. So he, he... He's desperate as a parent to support them in their ministry that is there. And Paul was regarding his character as an example within this. So what does that mean for you? You're just as much a pastor, shepherd, father, mother, nurturer of people that you share the gospel with as I am. You can share the gospel and you can be pastoral to the people that are around you. The whole concept is that I equip the saints for the work of the ministry and you can minister in the context of your life. How are you doing in being a mother towards those that are weak and a father to those that need direction and an encourager and being present in the moment with people? To be in that place. To nurture them. I love the example as he, he, he ends with his father role and it reminds me of Ephesians 6.4. It says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why? Why do we need to instruct people? Because people need to know how to walk worthy of the Lord. It's not going to happen automatically. What does that mean? It means doing life on life with people. Do life on life with people. Bringing somebody to church on Sunday is only one part. Being part of a small group with people, being in discipleship, Bible read-throughs, or whatever it is that you can do, that's how you nurture people. This is discipleship. It's making learners. We have plenty of opportunities for you to invite somebody, and instead of you going by yourself, find somebody that you can bring with you, that you can do life on life with them. I want to challenge you this next year. Disciple at least one person. You say, well, Carrie, I don't know enough. Yeah, you do. You know the gospel. Give them the gospel. Take them to the Word of God. And do life on life with them. Get plugged into a group. One of the things that our Next Gen group is going to be, and Next Gen is is really open for anybody it says families but we have families we got singles we got just come doesn't matter we're going to start the revised version of experiencing god henry blackaby's book we're going to go over it over the uh, quite a while it's going to take us and one of the quotes in that is find out where god's working and go there find out where god's working and go there experiencing god in the day-to-day life and experience Paul continues on, returns back as, as Paul does in praise, and he says, verse 13 to 16, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ who were in Judea. And also endured the same suffering in the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They also, not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up in the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon the uttermost. In other words, Paul says, I'm thankful because the word of God is doing its work in your life. I don't have to tell you what to do, God's doing that. You might say, well, I don't know how to disciple somebody. I need a discipleship class. I need to go to a discipleship class before I can disciple somebody. No, you don't. What you need is you need to be convinced that the Word of God is powerful to transform lives. Because it's transformed your life, take the Word of God, go to somebody and say, you know, let's spend some time and let's grow together. And is it going to be hard? Yeah. Paul was thankful because they were committed to, to the Word of God. It's a theme all the way through Thessalonians that they were committed to the Word of God. And it's the Word of God that changes lives. It was evident in the church. How was it evident? Because the Macedonian church was growing just like the Judean church. And the Macedonian church was being persecuted just like the Judean church. You say, well, what does that prove? It proves that Satan was against them. You want to know if you're in the right place? Look and see if there's persecution in your life. Then you'll know. Because if you're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, Satan doesn't like what you're doing. He, doesn't, he wants to throw you off with this. He, he's, he's thankful that he's seeing them endure this suffering. Also, just like the Judean Christians. And he's hearing about them. The same group is growing. And he sees the big church growing. Growing. Remember the commission that Jesus said. He said, go unto all the world. To your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? Where? Uttermost parts of the earth. And from Judea, the gospel is growing all the way through Turkey, Asia, all throughout that area. And the church is growing. One of the desires in my prayer recently has been as I hear about places where the Word of God is not being taught, and people are having to watch online, they're watching on YouTube, and I, and I hear, um, you know, we had a brother that moved to Montana, and he says, there's no good Bible teaching churches in my small town. And I said, here's what I would encourage you to do. The five people that you've got hanging out with you, and you're looking for a Bible teaching church, on Sunday mornings, make church... Sunday morning watching or online. And then as you do that, as you do that, raise up disciples and somebody to teach for you. But what would it be like if God would say, more in community fellowship, start church planting. Start sending intentionally people out to where people from here have got and they're looking for that home church. What would it be like to go down and, and to a place where there isn't a, a rural area where they really don't have a good, solid church and we have people from our congregation that's moved to and help them get their church going? doesn't have to be a, a, a satellite from here, but it could be a start. And then hand it over. Isn't that what Paul did? To be able to do that. To be able to grow. And it will be hard. And there is Persecution. And you're going to make Satan mad. But Jesus said in John 15:18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world because the world hates you. These believers in Thessalonica were starting a church and it was hard. And they didn't have Paul there for very long. We know that they accepted the word. Finally, Paul expresses his concern for the church. In verse 17 all the way through to the end of, of uh, chapter 13, he says this, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, because he got, ran out and had to go to Berea, in person, not in spirit, but were more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered me. For who is our hope and joy and our crown and exaltation? You are. It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming, for you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God and fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out more about your faith, to fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be a vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and your love, and that you always think kindly of longing to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and afflictions, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord Jesus, in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for the joy which rejoiced before our God in an account as. Night and day we keep praying earnestly that we might see your face, may complete that which is lacking in faith now. And he closes this section with a prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father At the coming of our Lord Jesus and the saints. So what is Paul's concern? Paul's concern is that they're going to crash and burn. Paul's concern is for their spiritual well-being. That somehow that when Paul was run out of town, that they would fall apart within this. And Satan is our spiritual adversary and he's attacking with this. Paul's concern was valid because he had no information. And when he couldn't take it anymore, he sent Timothy. And at the writing of this letter, he had sent Timothy. It came back and he says, this is what happened before we sent Timothy. We got the word back and you're doing good. You're doing good. I still want to see you, but you're doing good. His concerns were alleviated because they continued in what? Faith, hope, and love. They continued in the gospel within this. And so what does he do? He says I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you till I see you. And he prays specific prayers. He prays in this letter these specific prayers that first that he would make his way back. Second, he prays that their love for one another would overflow. And as a result of the fruit of the spirit, Paul prays for their righteousness and fourth, Paul's praise for their endurance. Within this. We can see. That they are looking forward. To this prayer. To be encouraged. Within this. And it's a prayer. Notice he says in this prayer. At the end. He says I am praying. That he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness. Before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all his saints. Within this. And again, he refers back to this first Thessalonians passage, which he'll unpack more next week. He said, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until the coming Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. The trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. People, life is going to get tough. But we have hope. Don't lose hope. Why do we have hope? Because Paul says in in this passage, he says it's the same Lord Jesus who died and rose again. Communion is really all about that. Communion is about being able to be in that place of remembering all that He's done. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we prepare our hearts for communion. To be in that place, in that, that space, in our minds, in our hearts. And maybe tonight you find yourself discouraged. If you're watching online, join us in this time of communion, of, of, of reflecting. As the world presses in, and your, your response is, it's getting harder and harder to follow you, God. Let's look to Jesus. Let's look to the cross. Let's look to the new life that's been afforded to us. Jesus gave us tangible reminders to remember Him. The bread reminds us of His body. And when we think about that bread, I want you to think about tonight about that bread. When you take that bread, think about for the fact that you will not have to pay for one sin that you've ever committed because Jesus took those sins to the cross. When you hold that cup, be reminded that Jesus shed His blood over 2,000 years ago so that you could stand perfect before a holy God today. And that these are tangible items that we hold on to as we look to Jesus to come and take us out of here. But till then, we've been entrusted with the gospel message to share with people that they could have the same hope. Faith, hope, and love all together that will keep you through the darkest times. God, I thank you for this time. And as we celebrate this communion, may you do that work in our heart and bring great encouragement to us. And as the worship team plays, feel free after you spend some time with God to come up, take the bread, and take the cup And return to your seat. Wait till everybody's been served, and then we'll take it all together at the end.
2: I was buried beneath my rebellion, lost without hope of redemption, blind in my need for a stable.
0: Oh, but.
2: Crushed by the weight of my failure, living the lie I created, my grave without knowing. Oh, For your freedom. Cause you were the one that I needed. Oh, but God resurrected my heart from the ruins. My rescue came through like the morning. Now, this is my short testimony. Oh
1: thank you for this bread that we hold up. We know that it is a a tangible gift that you've given to us to remind us of the eternal gift of life. That our sins were paid for at the cross. The old man was buried in the grave with you, Lord Jesus. And buried with you in death, we rise again. And we look forward to that day. But till then, we want to say thank you. Thank you for giving of yourself, sacrificially, and in totality, so that we might live. We thank you for this bread and all that it means. And we honor you in Jesus' name. Let's all take the. This cup that we hold reminds us of the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says, As often as you drink this, remember me. What do we remember? That the blood of our precious Savior was shed on Calvary to wash away every remnant of sin. Now right now, before a holy God, you stand purified because of the righteousness of Christ. Our works are like filthy rags, but you've been made clean. So God, it's with great gratitude that we hold this cup up to you and we ask that you bless it. We have been blessed. We are blessed and we will be blessed for all eternity because of what you've done, Lord Jesus. As we receive this cup together as your church, the called out once, called to yourself, called to heaven, called to new life, we recognize the sacrifice that you made for us. And we say thank you. And out of obedience, we're following you all the days of our lives and in this communion. May you be blessed as your church celebrates you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, let's all drink this together.